Father, we are we're just grateful to be here tonight. We are your people, and uh, this week is the most the most important week for us as we reflect on the most important events of uh, of your redemption story. We thank you that Jesus was born. We thank you that he lived a a perfect life under the law. We thank you that he suffered and he died for us. We thank you that he was buried, uh, meaning he was really dead, and that he rose again and gave us this new life in himself. We thank you that he ascended and now rules over us. And even as we gather tonight and we reflect on his death specifically, he is ruling over his church. And so we pray that what we do here tonight would be pleasing to him, that we would be able to glorify him and keep our focus on him. And I do pray that, that you would help all of us focus, help us to come to grips with what the cross means. And I pray that, uh, that there won't be any gimmicks or manipulations or anything that, that might produce a forced or, or a fake response. We don't want any of that. We, we want all of us to, to deal with the cross honestly and, uh, and, and open ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit, to the real work of the Holy Spirit. So we pray that he will, in fact, work in our hearts tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be reading from Isaiah, chapter 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance in his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shares its silence, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 41. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, waggering their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Limai, Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And with the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last breath, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came upon up with him to Jerusalem. I'll be reading from Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. My, my text is Galatians 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, 20. And if you're using a Black Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 973. This is a familiar passage to some of you. Some of you have it memorized. Um, let me read it. This is Apostle Paul who says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me read it again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what Paul is saying. Jesus loved me. Jesus died for me. And his death changed everything for me. His death changed so much in my life that I now can say it is no longer I who live but it's Christ who lives in me. So it's as if his death now changed me so much that he lives through me and I live for him. In fact, Paul says, I have been crucified with him. It's like I died because he died, and now I live a totally different life. My life is not my own anymore, but Christ lives in me. And if I live in the flesh, meaning in this present life, I live by faith. In other words, my, my worldview is, is affected by the cross. And so Jesus, his death in particular, is the controlling, defining, central, most important factor in my life. The cross of Christ fundamentally, radically, and eternally changed Apostle Paul in his life. Now, what I'd like us to, to do tonight is I'd, I've been praying, and I'd like very much for us to experience that kind of change, the same kind of change. So my goal is to put us right in front of the cross. I want us to be confronted with what happened to Jesus, and I want us to challenge us to deal with the cross without delay, without excuses, and honestly 
come into grips with what happened with Jesus. So I, I'm not going to mess around tonight is what I'm saying. Um, no jokes. I'm not going to use fancy illustrations. I'm really going to speak very directly about what happened to Jesus and then what it means to us specifically. So let's, let's first look at what happened to Jesus on the cross. And then secondly, how it challenges us tonight. One of the most remarkable things in Scripture, to me, is that you have these prophecies, like we read one, Tom read Isaiah 53, where, where it talks about the death of Jesus many, many hundreds of years earlier in very specific detail. Which makes me think the way Jesus died was important. It wasn't just that he died, that, that's important, but it's the manner of his death that mattered. It mattered enough for God to tell us how he's going to die. So Isaiah 53 is a good passage to go to, and we read that, but Psalm 22 is another great passage to go to. Now, what we might not know today, is because we're so used to the cross, is that when the psalm was written, Psalm 22, the psalm of David, so written by King David about a thousand years before Christ, right? So this, this is a very long time before Jesus actually came. And, and I don't think anybody's actually disputing that. Even the, the, the most critical scholars, I think, would still say that the psalm was written many, many years, hundreds of years before Christ actually came. And what's interesting is that for the Jews, crucifixion was not a familiar thing. It's not something they did. That's not how they put their criminals to death. That's not really how anybody else really put criminals to death. And so, so for them, to, for, for David to write a psalm that in great detail describes a crucifixion is, is quite a remarkable thing. I'm going to read you some passages, and the point I'm making is that the manner of Christ's death matters. So Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Of course, that's the verse that Jesus quoted on the cross. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Based on Jillian's reading, this sounds very close to what actually happened. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue stick, sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Again, these details of bones being out of joint, the heart melting, um, the, the strength drying up, the thirst, all of that happened in crucifixion. Verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, this, this is a remarkable detail. They have pierced my hands and feet. They, Jews didn't do that. And yet this is a prophecy and was fulfilled, of course, on the cross. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots which again, we know that's exactly what happened. The soldiers actually divided Jesus' clothes and had to cast lots for his one-piece tunic that couldn't be divided among them. So, so that's the prophecy, right? And, and what I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, if God gave us that and he told us this is how Jesus is going to die, that means the details are important. That means the manner of death, the crucifixion specifically, matters. 
And there are aspects of the crucifixion that, that speak to us today about his death and about our life. So I want to look through some of these details. I'm, I'm not going to be deliberately gruesome, okay? I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to emotionally manipulate you tonight, okay? I'm really trying hard not to do that. Be, but I want us to see what actually happened and how it might, might affect us. In the Roman Empire, crucifixion was considered the cruelest way to die and was reserved for the lowest of criminals. No dispute here. Nobody argues with that. It was the cruelest way to die, and it was reserved specifically for the lowest of criminals. So, for example, if you were a Roman citizen, you were never going to be crucified because you were too important. It's only people who had no power. It's only people who committed the greatest offenses that, that were warranted uh, a crucifixion. So, in other words, you, you must have done something particularly awful for the empire to be so angry with you that they employed the greatest form of execution available to them. Crucifixion was designed not just to end someone's life. I mean, it did that effectively, but it was designed to destroy the person. It was designed to destroy the person as much as it was possible. In every way possible to the greatest degree imaginable, the crucifixion was, was supposed to destroy that person. So I'm going to read a quote from, from a book by Fleming Rutledge. Um, it's called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. And, and she puts some of, some of these details together. Um, she says, Crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its express purpose, express purpose, the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. It cannot be said too strongly that was its function, It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with subversive ideas that crucified persons were not of the same species as either the executioners or the spectators and were therefore not only expendable but also deserving of ritualized extermination. Pay attention to this language. She's saying it was designed to to not just destroy a person, right, and not just to, to kill someone, but to exterminate them, to show that they are lower than anybody else. They don't even belong to the same species of humanity. Ritualized extermination. Therefore, she goes on to say, the mocking and jeering that accompanied crucifixion were not only allowed, but were part of the spectacle and were programmed into it. In a sense, crucifixion was a form of entertainment. Everyone understood that the specific role of the passerby was to exacerbate the dehumanization and degradation of the person who had been thus designated to be a spectacle. Crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhumane impulses that lie within human beings. Now, these are her words. She's describing what, out of her research and what, what she understands the reality to be, she's saying, she's using words like elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race, ritualized extermination, dehumanization and degradation. That what crucifixion was supposed to accomplish. That was the design of that kind of punishment, of that kind of penalty. Now, I'm not saying this lightly, but if we see crucifixion for what it is, for what it is designed to do, 
We must put it in the same category as the lynching of African Americans in the South and as the Holocaust of Nazi Germany. Those are on the same level because the same aspects are there. Dehumanization, ritualized extermination, all of that kind of stuff is there. So we're talking about a different level of death. It's not just ending a human life, but it's robbing that life of anything human in the process. So if you were to think, how can we not just kill the body, not just kill the person, but how can we so humiliate that person, take away everything that we can from that person, you would come up with something like a crucifixion. Now physically, it was incredibly painful. It was designed to make it as painful as possible for as long as possible. Um, It's not an exaggeration to say that a crucified person was literally tortured to death. They were tortured until they died. There was, there was, no, you know, there was no mercy shown, really, um, unless you had to take the body down. But, but the design was to prolong suffering, to prolong pain. Um, scourging was, was part of it. That's, that's part of the ritual, right? The person was scourged. And if you, if you saw the movie, Passion of the Christ, right, you can't forget that. Those, it's very difficult to watch, something like that. But that's, I think it's a pretty accurate depiction of what happened. Um, person was naked, completely exposed, tied to a pole, and, and, and just hit with this contraption that they came up with, which was leather strings, leather belts with pieces of stone and bone and, and metal tied to it. And, and the point was, this is all very specific, the way it was designed. The point was to weaken the person to the lowest point, point but not to kill him. Because they still have to carry the cross. And, and we know that Jesus had a hard time carrying the cross. That's as, as weakened as he was from, from the scourging that, that started the execution. The person was nailed to the cross. Uh, with every breath, uh, there was pain. Uh, the, the way it was set up, when a person is nailed in that manner to the cross, every breath is actually painful. You have to use muscles that, that are in pain. The way they, the way you're you're put on the cross, and so with every breath, with every exhalation, which is really easy for us for us to do in a normal state, right? That brought pain, and that created tremendous effort in the person. Uh, of course, there are open wounds, there's thirst, there's exposure to the elements, there are insects. All of that stuff is happening. So physically, tremendously painful. Crucifixion was the most humiliating way to die. There's a lot of shame associated with it. Everything was done out in the open with people jeering and mocking the condemned person. Um, we know that in the account of Jesus' suffering and death, we read about the Roman soldiers mocking him by putting a crown of thorns on his head and a royal robe. That's, again, part of the ritual. It's part of the, the degrading, the abusing the person. Uh, the person was paraded through the city. That was typical as well. And the verbal Abuse continued at the cross even as the person was crying out in agony. People even threw refuse at the crucified person. It was unimaginably shameful. And let's not forget the person was naked, utterly exposed, nothing to shield themselves from public shaming. Now, let's add a degree of shame that only a Jewish person would have experienced on the cross. Remember, Jesus was 
was Jewish, and so he was rooted in this community, in this tradition that, that prized honor. And yet, um, in this case, all the honor was, was stripped deliberately from the person. There's even a greater degree of humiliation for a Jewish person being crucified. In the law, if you were, you were put on a tree, we know that from Scripture, from Galatians, if, you, if you, Paul is using that argument, if you're put on a tree, you're a curse, right? You're considered to be cursed by God. By that particular uh, execution, you were put in the category of those who are rejected, rejected by God. There's the exclusion from the covenant community. Remember, all the other people are, are mocking him, right? They're mocking the crucified Jew. And so he or she, they're excluded from the community. The, the community where the covenant of God, where the grace of God, where the promises of God are maintained, now you're completely outside of that. And in fact, your community has turned against you now. Even worse than just a typical Roman crucifixion for a Roman person or a Greek person, for a Jew, it's unimaginable humiliation and shame. The crucified person felt utterly alone. I already mentioned the mockery and humiliation and shame. That, that will make you feel alone. But the person was abandoned. We know that Jesus acutely felt the abandonment of his friends, right? Uh, even, even as he was praying before he, he was arrested, he's already sensing that abandonment, that, that separation from, from others and those who are, who are running away or betraying him or abandoning him, but he, he feels utterly Alone, and that's typical for somebody who is being crucified. There's another aspect of loneliness that most of us, we, we, we don't think about it because we don't understand how crucifixion works. The person actually died, the crucified person actually died because they decided to die. They, they were robbed of the dignity of someone else and in their life. They had to do it. Once you were completely out of strength, once you couldn't breathe anymore, you died. But they didn't actually kill you. They just put you in a situation where you would sort of kill yourself. It's, 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 an, it's an imaginable level of, of humiliation and loneliness and abandonment when you feel like there's not even a, a dignity of someone else helping you uh, at the end of your life. You're completely alone. And then, of course, there was guilt. To be crucified meant to, to be declared the the greatest degree of guilt. Um, I mentioned before that Roman citizens were never crucified because their very citizenship was seen as some sort of a mitigating factor. But for the crucified, there were no qualifying factors. There were no justifications, no extenuating circumstances. There were no rationalizations, nothing to, to make the punishment less. They were guilty in deserving the worst punishment Rome could administer. Now, everything I mentioned so far was typical of any crucifixion. That's, that was the design of that kind of punishment. But Jesus' experience in particular was, was much worse. We only looked at the human dimension so far, but think about what Jesus experienced in relation to God. It's another, another complete level. We read in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was smitten, stricken by God, right? He drank the cup of God's wrath. He was made sin who knew no sin. That's 2 Corinthians 5. He became a curse for us. This is what happened. All all these various scriptures teach us that Jesus took the guilt of sinful humanity and was punished to the fullest extent by God himself 
for the sins of the people. Now, can you imagine the pain of experiencing God's wrath? We have a word for it. It's one of the strongest words in the English language, hell. And you use it when you want to make a point, that word. The experience of God's wrath, the pain and the guilt, is hell. And Jesus experienced that on the cross. When we talk about the shame of the cross, we... It's not just the humiliation in front of people, right? That, that's terrible in and of itself. But, it, but it's the shame of, of ultimate rejection, of, of this, this cosmic separation from God. There's the, that, that complete exposure before God, not just the physical nakedness on the cross, but, but the spiritual nakedness. Jesus says, here I am, this is, this is what I am, and God says, no, I don't want you, you're rejected. Jesus experienced that. Jesus experienced ultimate abandonment, ultimate isolation and loneliness on the cross, as we see it specifically when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's, that's that dimension. So there, there's the human dimension, there's the divine dimension, and, and now I want to very briefly tell you kind of what it means. Why, why did God do that? Why would God send his own son, the innocent son, right, to this kind of death? Predicted beforehand, tell us this is what's going to happen, this kind of manner of death. Why did God do that? Well, one, God let us see the effects of sin on himself, on God. What we see on the cross is what sin actually does to God. Now, we don't want to think about that, right? We'd like to say, oh, my sin doesn't hurt anybody. It hurts God. It hurts other people, but it hurts God. And what you see on the cross is, is the destruction of God through our sin. Jesus is being destroyed to the deepest degree imaginable, and the reason is it's our sin. That's the reason. Secondly, God exposed the various aspects of sin things we talked about is guilt and shame and isolation and pain. All those are aspects of sin. And again, we might not want to connect the dots. We might not want to say, my sin has those aspects, that my sin brings shame, my sin, sin brings pain, my sin makes me guilty. But it's true. And God tells us, this is how it is. Look at the cross. Your sin is shameful. Your sin leads to isolation and loneliness. Your sin puts you under my wrath. Your sin produces tremendous amount of pain to yourself and to other people and to me, God says. That's the influence of sin. And number three, God provided the solution for our sin. This is why on this day we say it's Good Friday, right? Even though we grieve, we mourn today. We're, we're not laughing, we're not dancing today. That's Sunday. But the reason we call it good is because there's a solution to our sin that's, that's given to us in the cross of Jesus. And the solution is that Jesus did that all for us. All those things he did for us. He didn't deserve any of that, not as a human being, not as God, not as an innocent person. And yet he went through it. He told us he was going to do it. He did it. And now he says, I did it for you. So when Paul writes about it in Galatians 2, he says, Jesus loved me and he gave himself up for me. Paul makes it very personal. He's saying, I've been crucified with Christ, 
That's how important Jesus' death is to me. That's how much it influenced me. But why? Why is it that someone's death totally changes me? It's because I know that he did that for me. He did that to rid me of my sin. He did that to save me from my sin. Now that's what happened on the cross. And if that's true, it requires a response for us. If what I said is true, and please challenge me, you know, find me afterwards, I'm happy to talk about it. I don't want to make empty statements with no backup. I'm happy to talk you through any of this if you want to talk about this. But if, I, if what I say is true, if what Scripture says is true, we have to deal with the cross. We have to do something about it. Now, we can reject it, and we can say none of that matters. It's not true. It doesn't matter to me. I don't want to think about it. That's one response. But if you're honest, and you say, okay, what do I do with that? There are several responses that are warranted. So I'm going to give you a couple of different directions to go at. And, and I'd like to kind of be thinking about it and place yourself in one of these categories, maybe more of these categories, and see how the cross might affect you tonight. So one response would be conversion, would be following Jesus. Maybe you didn't follow Jesus before, you didn't believe in Jesus before, you didn't worship Jesus before, and now, because you understand what the cross meant, what happened to him, and that it happened for you, that Jesus did that for you, now you come to him And you say, now I will follow. And you embrace him by faith. You die to yourself and you live to Christ. So with Paul, you can can say, I've been crucified with Christ. Tonight, on this Good Friday, I've been crucified with Christ. It it, it clicked for me. It matters to me. I'm, I'm a changed person because of what Jesus did for me. And so you decide to follow him into a new life because he followed you into death. That's number one, conversion if you're not a believer. If you are a believer, repentance may be a response for some of us. Repentance. If there are particular sin in your life that you need to confess and turn away from tonight, think about it. Ask the Holy Spirit to tell you what, it, what is it in your life that you need to confess tonight. Because if the cross is real, if what happened to Jesus is true, How can we hold on to sin? It makes no sense. If my sin did that to Jesus, how can I continue in sin? How can I do what I do or think what I think or feel what I feel if I know that's the reason why Jesus died for me? And so the right response here is to confess it and to say, I I repent, I turn away from that, and I turn to you. The next possible response is healing. Come to the cross for healing. This is a different dimension. Maybe you didn't sin. Maybe you are a believer. But maybe you have been hurt. Maybe you have been humiliated. Maybe you have been used by someone and neglected, abandoned, or abused, or belittled, or in any way sinned against. Somebody did something to you. The cross of Christ not only frees you from the guilt of your sin that you did, but also from the shame of sins that were done to you. I'll just pause here just for a second, because this is such a powerful thing. Because all of us, all of us carry shame. All of us have been wounded deeply by someone. How do you get rid of it? 
How do you stop feeling ashamed and, and dirty and used? How, how do you get over something like that? Most of us don't. But what if the cross is true? What if the shame that Jesus took on himself is somehow your shame? What if Jesus said, I will be abused and I will be belittled and I will be degraded and I will be ritually exterminated so that I can take away your shame? Now, it's not your fault. Whatever happened to you, it's not your fault. Somebody did something to you. But it changes you, doesn't it? How do you get rid of that? How do you find healing? How do you find forgiveness? Forgiving someone who, who did something so awful to you maybe is doing something so awful to you. How do you get over that? How do you forgive? How do you get over the bitterness, the resentment, the pain in your heart? Well, if the cross is real, I think it has that kind of power. I think it can cleanse you. I'm using an old word, right? Cleanse you. But that's exactly what happens. There's a cleansing that it it cleans you, it washes you, and it takes away that shame. And maybe it's something that nobody else knows about you. Nobody else knows what happened to you. But at the cross, you can talk to Jesus about that. And he will completely understand. I'm not saying this lightly. He will completely understand because of the crucifixion. Because he was embarrassed and humiliated and abused and used by others too. The next one would be, come to him for strength in suffering. So we can come to him to to start following him. We can come to him to repent and confess a particular sin and turn away from that. We can come to him for healing and cleansing. We can also come to him when we are suffering. In our pain, we can come to him. We are not above our master. If we are believers, our master suffered, and we must suffer as well. It's in suffering that we become like him. And so you can come to the cross and make peace with your suffering. For for many of us, it's very difficult to accept. And we we just talked about it last Sunday, and, and, and I know how it sounds when I say things like, whatever you have in your life, this is exactly what God wants for you because he loves you. I can say that, but I know, I know for many of us it doesn't ring true. Because you say, how can God do that to me? But at the cross, at the cross... You can make peace with that. Because at the cross, you see a God who gives his son for you. And no amount of suffering can compare with his suffering. He's always going to suffer more than us. And we follow him. And so we can always trust him. Because he never says, I'm not going to do it, but you will do it. (laughs) No, no, he's done it. And so whatever he gives us is in fact good. And is for our good and is for his glory. And at the cross, we can make peace with the circumstances of our lives. And finally, the last possible response, and there's probably more, but I'll give you this one as last one. We can come to him in obedience. Is he calling you to do something? Is he calling you to start something, to make a decision? And you say, this is too hard. This is too much that you're asking of me. That's a normal response for us human beings, to say, this is too much, don't ask me to do that. But at the cross, at the cross, we can't say that. How can you say to a crucified, humiliated Savior, what you're asking of me is too much? 
I can't say that to him. Not when I'm at the cross and looking at him. I can't say that. Because nothing is too much in light of the cross. Nothing is. Everything is on the table in the Christian life. There's nothing that you can say, God, you can ask me anything else, but not that. Mm -mm. There are no limits for that. God can ask you anything because of the cross. And so we respond in obedience and saying, because of what you did for me on the cross, I'm ready. I'm going to need help to do this. And it's going to be incredibly hard for me, and I'm going to have issues with that, but I'm taking that step. So if God is asking you to do something, if he's calling you to do something, you come and you make that decision at the cross. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're going to sing songs reflecting on the cross. And as you sing, or if you choose not to sing, that's okay. Think about what God wants you to respond with to the cross. Does he want you to respond in conversion, saying, I didn't follow you before, but now I will. Does he want you to respond in repentance, saying, I have this sin or these sins in my life, and I'm going to give them up. I'm going to confess them to you, and I'm going to give them up and turn away from them. Does he want you to respond in, in healing and saying, I, I will forgive and I, I need to get out, get the shame and humiliation out and I need your help to cleanse me? Is it obedience when you're saying, you want me to do this, I will do this? Or is it suffering where you make peace with what he has given you in your life? Whatever it is, think about what the response will be for you. And again, don't feel forced to do that. This is, this is not, I'm not trying to get you to do anything. I want you to be free to do what the Holy Spirit wants you to do tonight. And so we're creating an environment for that. That's all we're doing. And as you sing, be prepared, and then I'll tell you how to express that response uh, to Christ. So let's, I'm going to have Ben come up, and we're going to sing songs as we continue to reflect on the cross of Christ. <clears throat>